Well, good morning, I'm Pastor Allen. Welcome, whether in person or online. We're glad that you're joining us. We teach in series, and this series where we started the year off with is called Tough as Nails. Today's topic is keeping our eyes, and uh, I left the rest of that off on purpose, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Do you want to start with a question? What comes to mind when you hear the term Christian? Now, most of you watching are probably Christians, so you had a certain perspective. If you're not a Jesus follower at this point, we're glad that you're tuning in. And your answer would, might be a little bit different. In fact, um, probably is a little bit different. I have a neighbor who's not a Christian, and he comes and visits. And when he, when he leaves, I, I always appreciate it. He always says, it's always good to see you. And I always say, it's good to see you too. And so what are you thinking? If, if your neighbor move, new neighbor moves in and they say they're, they're, you find out they're a Christian, what comes to mind? Uh, are they going to be one of those weird Christians? <laughs> are they going to be kind of one of those normal ones? Um, are they going to be nice, get, easy to get along with? Are they going to be, you know, judgmental? Uh, what, my, what comes to mind when you hear the word Christian? Uh, when our kids were dating, they'd always come back and say how cute or handsome that, that, that date was. And our first question always to them was what? Are they a Christian? Uh, that's what's most important. Are they pretty on the inside, so to speak? Hopefully they're pretty also on the outside. But I would suggest to you one word that doesn't come to mind when you, when you think Christian is the word fearless. Fearless. Did anybody think of the word fearless? I don't think so. Uh, but we talked about this last week, that Jesus was absolutely fearless. He went into the temple and turned tables upside down. He rode into Jerusalem. No, he was waiting uh, arrests and, and torture and execution. And as we've said in the past, he could have stopped at any time he wanted, yet he, he wasn't killed. He sacrificed himself. So Jesus was absolutely Fearless. He was not afraid of anything. Now, something else we talked about last week was this. Uncertainty is unavoidable. Change, uncertainty, it's always going to happen. You can't control it. I can't control it. But, this is big. This is huge. Fear, as a result of uncertainty, is optional. And we all have that personal experience. Sometimes our our lives have been... uh, turn upside down or topsy-turvy, and we're not fearful. Other times, small things cause us fear. So fear is optional. Now, consequently, Jesus is fearless. Fearless fear is optional. So those of us that call ourselves Christians or Jesus followers, we should not fear. So I I, I put it uh, optimistically. Because we don't fear, in this case, loss, When we fear, it's fear of loss of something, control, health, finances, uh, the life we desire, etc., etc. But because we do not fear loss, we are selfless. I can share my financial resources with you because I'm not afraid that I'm going to become destitute. I can share my life with you, my time with you, etc., etc. I can be generous. I can be also uh, confident, not an arrogant confidence, but a humble confidence because I don't need to be afraid. 
So I can go forth with confidence. I can help people with confidence. I can be aside someone, uh, early church, they would take care of the sick, and they didn't know about medicine and all that stuff that we know about today. So because we don't fear loss or shouldn't fear loss, we can be selfless or should be selfless. Now, Christians are Jesus followers. We use that term a lot, Jesus followers. So, (laughs) we should look like the one we're following. So, we should look like Jesus. Again, Jesus was fearless. We should also look fearless. And one reason we're doing this series is, I don't think anybody describes us as fearless uh, as believers. A couple other things about Jesus. Jesus was not fragile. He didn't, wasn't easily broken. In fact, he, was never, he wasn't broken. Uh, Jesus wasn't fragile. Christianity isn't fragile. It, it lasted for 2,000 years. It's still going pretty strong today. And so you and I, as part of that, should not be fragile either. So, we appear to be. We really do. And that's what, I don't say scares me, but it disappoints me. Disappoints in myself. So I asked the question, what went wrong with us? What's gone wrong with us? Why are we not like uh, Jesus? Why are we not like the early disciples? Why are we not like the early church and some people through history that we've seen? We talked about Tyndale uh, last week. Why? Why are we freaking out? Now, I understand what's going on in the world is, is disturbing. But why, why are we freaking out about it? Early Christians, often were described this way, were irresistible. Uh, Even though people didn't believe what they believed, they saw what they were doing, and consequently, it grew into the church of maybe two billion people today. People nothing like Jesus were attracted to Jesus. We would call them sinners, non-religious people. They loved Jesus. They were attracted to Jesus, and Jesus loved them. He hung out with them, and the same should be said of us. Again, Jesus followers. Uh, so Christianity, uh, in some respects, was irresistible in the first century. Uh, talked about Jesus. Now, I'm going to talk about first century. We're going to look at something written in a book called Hebrews. Uh, we don't know the author, who it was, but this was something, uh, reflection that, of the first century that was kept and placed in our Bible, of course. And as we read this, I can't help but feel a little embarrassed. I'm embarrassed a little bit about how the church, church and we as Christians react to the world today, but especially it's going to be embarrassing when we look at those who call themselves Jesus followers in history. And the author, I think, is trying to answer two questions. Is it worth it, this thing called Christianity, is it worth it? Is it worth what? You need to sacrifice to be one. And is it working? Because we have to realize in the first century, all these, it started out with these little house churches in a vast minority. Uh, is it working? Is it going to last? Is it going to uh, uh, amount to anything? See, say they didn't know. Can you imagine? <laughs> if somebody from the early, mid-first century was to be plopped down in, in the United States today and see... You know, in Smithsburg, we probably have, what, a half a dozen churches? In Smithsburg alone. And they would have these, just these little house churches. You can imagine that what they started would become what it is today. 
uh, <coughs> like the little story about, hypothetical story, about um, angels coming to Jesus and said, hey, uh, we understand that, you know, you've got these followers, these disciples, and they've started this thing called Christianity. Uh, and What's your plan B if it doesn't work? And Jesus said, there is no plan B. It's, it's them or nothing. They're to carry the, my message to, to a lost and dying world. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 and part of chapter 12. A lot of it we're going to skip. Uh, and maybe you read it ahead of time. Uh, you can read it later this afternoon, whatever. Fascinating chapter. Uh, so I've got a, a summation, a lot of summation of Old Testament. So, first verse is pretty familiar. First verse says this. Faith, got to have, you know, faith is part of being a Jesus follower. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see, which is kind of a weird statement, right? Evidence is something you can see. So I'm going to show you the amplified version. It helps fill in a little bit of the explanation. Faith is the assurance. I like this term, title deed. Now, somebody, you can go and pay for a car, and they say, you know, you own this car now. But it's a little dicey, a little uncomfortable until what? You actually receive, I guess from the MBA, the, the, the title. But between that is your faith. You have the assurance that the title's coming in the mail. A confirmation is another word. Of things hoped for. Now, hope is not a wishful thinking type hope. It's a divinely guaranteed hope. Now, a guarantee is only as good as the person who guarantees it, right? So, <clears throat> if I guarantee you uh, uh, I'm going to give you a million dollars, you're not going to have much guarantee there, are you? <laughs> I don't have a million dollars to give to you. But a divine guarantee, you can take to the bank. And so that's what this is. Faith is a divine guarantee. <clears throat> no one can stop Almighty God. And the evidence of things not seen. What does that mean? The conviction of the reality. You don't see it, but you're convicted it's real. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by physical senses. I thought that was a really good way to describe it. I can't smell it, I can't touch it, I can't feel it, but I comprehend it as fact. So, shorter definition is this. Faith is confidence that someone is going to keep their promise. This is a general definition of faith, not a religious definition. Now, religiously, this verse is misused, unfortunately, by the church, some aspects of the church. This verse is not a promise that you have some kind of power over God, that you can manipulate God, that you can get God to do what you want to do if you have enough faith. That's not what it says. It's confidence that God will keep his promise. Now, in general, a job. You all understand faith. Anybody's had a job, for example. You go to this employer. He tells you what he's offering you, the benefits, your salary, etc. And you decide, oh, yeah, I would like to take the job. So you agree. They say, I want to employ you. Start on Monday morning. You get paid every two weeks. So you work for one, two, three, you work for 10 days before you got a paycheck, correct? 
For 10 days, you have faith that the employer is going to pay you that paycheck two weeks later. That's faith. Someone has promised you something that you believe is real and becomes reality to you sometime in the future. So the, the author goes on. It's by this kind of faith, the men of old, talking about Old Testament, gained divine approval. God's approval was this by this kind of faith, believing that God would keep his promise sometime in the future. They trusted God that he could be trusted. <laughs> Another way to say it. Uh, then we're going to skip down to verse 6. The flip side of this is, and it's impossible to please God without faith. So we get God's approval with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And you and I can do all kinds of religious things without faith. I can read my Bible without faith. I can even pray without faith. We can come to worship without faith. So the only thing that's, that counts spiritually, the only thing that God approves or is pleased with is actions of faith. So anyone who wants to come to him must believe. Another word for faith. In this case, that God exists and that he rewards those who secretly seek him, sincerely seek him, excuse me. Uh, so believe that there's something that he's going to provide for you. And then we're going to skip down to 13, verse 13. He starts talking about Noah and, and Moses and Abraham. We're going to talk more about Abraham in a minute. And then he gets to verse 13. He says this, And all these people died still believing what God had promised them. Okay? They believed up to the time they died. But the interesting thing, thing is this. They did not receive what was promised. They saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were, well, we'll get there in a second. Abraham's a good example. God promised Abraham he's going to be father of a great nation. There's going to be more descendants than the sand on the seashore. But eventually this remnant of his was going to bless or touch the whole world. That didn't happen to when? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, after Abraham, so Abraham lived and died without receiving the promise, and his son, and his son, and his son, and along came Moses, and, and King David, and Solomon, all these people. They all didn't receive what was promised, called the Messiah. Now, here's something we don't talk about very often. <laughs> they along with us, the call ourselves Jesus followers, agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. And one of the things that's a little disturbing is that we feel too comfortable here on earth. <laughs> we're not supposed to feel, feel comfortable on, on earth. Uh, I lived in another country, and we loved living in Portugal, and we loved the Portuguese people, but it still wasn't home. It still wasn't the United States. We were speaking a different language. They had different customs. We thought some of their customs were weird. They thought some of our customs were weird, etc. So that's the way we should feel as Jesus followers, a little out of place here in this world. And we, we pray for something. We pray for it for a week, and if it doesn't happen, we get frustrated with God. We lose faith. We're talking about hundreds of, 
of years between the promise and the answer. And we, you know, <laughs> tend to give up after a week or two. So then we're going to skip. He talks about a lot of other people. It's really a strange list. Some of these folks didn't seem all that <laughs> uh, faithful people, and some people aren't on the list. But then he comes to a summation. And some folks we don't know by name. So he summarizes this way. But others were tortured. Tortured, you know. Pull your fingernails out or whatever we would do it today. They were tortured. And he gives some examples. But they refused to turn from God in order to be set free. Okay, so we're going to torture you unless you deny your Christ. And they said, nope, not going to do that. I'll take the torture. That's something, isn't it? They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Better life after this life. Again, I, I, this is not my home. <laughs> I, I, I'm a foreigner here. I'm going to go home one of these days. Some were jeered at. Some, their backs were opened with whips. We talked about that last week. Others were chained and put in prison. Some died by stoning. I got to thinking about this one. Can you imagine standing someplace and these people throwing rocks or stones at you, bruising and cutting your body until you died or hopefully you go unconscious before you die. Can you imagine that happening to you? And refusing to give up your faith, your belief, until um, that happened. Uh, some died by stoning. Some were sawn in half. Can't imagine that one. Others were killed by the sword. That was pretty common. Someone about wearing skins of sheep and goat. What they mean is they were destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They didn't literally die, but their lives were difficult, right? Notice the next phrase. The world, this world, was not worthy of them. <laughs> what a wonderful phrase. Somebody that has enough faith to, to resist torture and death they won't give up that faith. They live on a higher plane. They live on a, a plane of faith that most of us don't even, can't comprehend or don't understand. But this world is not worthy of them. It certainly wasn't worthy of Jesus, and of course he's the, our model, example. Some wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. Most of us have no comprehension of the difficulty that, that generations and generations of Christians have gone through. Because we have it so easy as Jesus followers in, in the United States today. But there was once a version of faithfulness to God that was awe-inspiring. I don't know about you, but that's awfully awe-inspiring to me. But there's been other people through history. I, I was reading it this week. It's been 65 years ago, uh, I think last week that there was five missionaries in Ecuador that the native tribesmen speared to death. They threw spears through them and killed them. Uh, the one that's most famous to people today is a guy by the name of Jim, Jim Elliott. Um, Elizabeth Elliott was his, uh, his wife. And uh, he wrote something in his journal, obviously, before he died, that, uh, see if I can get it right. He is no fool who is willing to give up what he cannot keep, life, for that which he cannot lose, which meant eternal life. And it's a fascinating story. Uh, 
Elizabeth, his wife, and one of the men's sisters came, later came back to that tribe and shared Christ, and many of them were converted to Christianity. Can you imagine that? But that's all inspiring, isn't it? If somebody is willing to go someplace and actually give their, risk their lives and actually give their lives uh, to tell people that God loves them. So, continuing with the text. And all of these, all of these, again, though they gained divine approval through their faith, did not receive the fulfillment of what was promised. It was out there in the future. We believe it's going to happen. This Messiah is going to come. He's going to die for, uh, for the sins of, uh, of mankind. But I, am gonna, I didn't see it during my lifetime. And then it goes on, for God had something better in mind for us. Okay? So he's writing this in the first century, and we're, you know, 2,000 years later. God had something better in mind for us. What is that? Jesus. <laughs> exactly. Now, here's the interesting thing, the thing that kind of disturbing. <laughs> they, those in the Old Testament, they were looking forward and were faithful. Abraham didn't see it fulfilled. Moses didn't see it fulfilled. Uh, David didn't see it fulfilled. They were faithful, even though they didn't see it fulfilled. We, us, today, we are looking back on Jesus and resurrection, yet we're fearful. Why is that? How is that? There's so much evidence. Old Testament, New Testament, early church, uh, Tyndale, and even, you know, missionaries today. So the text goes on. Uh, in our Bibles, it's another chapter, but the author was just writing. He didn't have chapters. So how should we respond? And this, this uh, first verse is pretty familiar, I think, to most people also. Therefore, you know, the old adage, why is it therefore? So therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, again, all these folks and so many more, what should we do? Oh, whine and complain. Or the person I voted for didn't become, uh, you know, didn't win office. Uh, you know, I didn't get a big enough check. Or I didn't get a check at all. Um, you know, my life has been disrupted by COVID. Uh, whine and complain, blame people. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do, right? Because of this evidence of all these other folks. Can you imagine somebody that, that, that was summarized in that summation looking down from heaven, I don't know if they can do this or not, but they're looking down from heaven and looking at us whining and complaining about our lives. Can you imagine? As comfortable as our lives are in the, in, the, in the ways that we complain, it's an embarrassment. Not only to people that are gone, I, I think about people like in Nigeria that we talked about last week. I think about people in Syria and other places that are living in these camps. They've had to leave their homes behind with only what they could carry. Some of the families are split up. Parents may never see their kids again. And we're whining and complaining? What kind of Christianity do we have? What kind of faith do we have? Again, the author is trying to answer two questions. Is it worth it? 
And is it working? Well, we've got 2,000 years of history to say, yeah, it's working. There's probably 2 billion people in the world, Christians today, 2 billion. Can you imagine from this no-name guy named Jesus? In fact, when you think about it, the only reason we know the people by the name of Herod or Pilate, you know the reason we know their names and you don't know a lot of other historical names? It's only because of Jesus that you know their name. Because they are minor characters in the, the story of Jesus, his story. So, you and I have to decide if it's worth it. Yes, obviously it's working. So he goes on. So we're not supposed to whine and complain. What are we supposed to be doing? Let us strip off every weight that slows us down. You know, I'm a runner. When I run, I don't like to carry extra stuff with me. <laughs> uh, I don't need something. If I'm running, I've got an extra uh, a long run. Wife is meeting me or something, and, and it gets warmer, and I, I'll take off one of my things that I'm wearing and discard it. One race, I just left it. Uh, I don't want any extra weight. I don't want anything I don't need. Well, he's saying, you and I need to do that with our faith. Especially, now not everything that we need to get rid of is sin necessarily, but especially the sins that so easily trip us up. And whining and complaining is a sin. Uh, get rid of those things. And run, let us run with endurance. Again, I'm being a runner, I love this, this, this analogy. Let us run with endurance the race. Now, some of us run marathons, an ultra marathon. This is not a sprint. It takes endurance to run hour after hour and mile after mile. And the Christian life is a marathon. The sin that so easily besets us. We all need to look in the mirror, figure out that, what that is. What's holding me back? What's causing me to be fearful? And we're going to bring that question up next. Um, but the race is specific to, your race is different than my race, my race is different than yours, so we need to figure out what it is. Next question is, what are we really afraid of? What are you really afraid of? Something political, something economic, something relational, something uh, medical. What is it that you and I are really afraid of? Somebody making fun of us? I don't what is it? Get rid of it. Whatever it is. Are you and I up for the fact that we are claiming the name of Jesus? I read this just this morning. Christianity is not a spectator sport. My wife watches me run. She doesn't run. <laughs> to her, it's a spectator sport. Uh, it's not a spectator sport. We are to be gladiators, not fans. I like that. So he goes on. He says, and we do this. Well, how do we do this? How do we run with endurance the race? How do we become and stay fearless? Well, he's going to tell us by keeping our eyes where? <laughs> keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping my eyes on Jesus. When does the fear come? When I look at the government, when I look at the economy, when I look at the, you know, the medical field, <laughs> Eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. That's the only way. <laughs> and uh, this part. Because of the joy. What did he do? Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus, 
He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. See, the cross wasn't just about pain. It was also about shame. So he's willing to put up with both of those things for the joy that awaited him. So we're so centered on now. He said, no, about joy in the future. Now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. So, if I'm a Jesus follower, I claim to be a Jesus follower, a couple questions. What would Jesus do? And I ask myself that periodically. I'm, I'm thinking, what would Jesus have done this week? Would he have stormed the Capitol? I don't think so. You could think differently. What would Jesus say? Would he be yelling and screaming at the other side of, uh, of the aisle? I don't think so. In fact, if you read the New Testament, Jesus tended to be not political at all. Because if you side with one side, you ostracize the other side, right? He didn't want to ostracize anybody. You and I shouldn't want to. How would Jesus respond? As I said last week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem into the jaws of death. He knew what it was awaiting him. And so if you and I are following him, where are we following him? To the jaws of death, potentially. Last verse we're going to cover here in Hebrews. Just consider and meditate on him, Jesus, who endured for sinners such bitter hostility against him. Consider it all in comparison with your trials. And we're not supposed to do a lot of comparing. But he's saying here, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus suffered this. I'm a Jesus follower. First century Christians suffered all this. <laughs> My trials? <laughs> Almost laughable. Not saying these things aren't important, they're not difficult. But in comparison? So, why is he saying this? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Quit. Give up. Decide it's not worth it. Now, I'm going to divide us up into two groups. 45 and older. Could be 40, could be 50, whatever. If you're 45 and older, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, this is a warning to us. It's so easy to grow weary and lose heart. The church doesn't seem to be as as uh, effective today as it was years ago. Being a pastor is more difficult. Being a Christian probably is more difficult. A member of the church. So it's easy. Yeah, I'll put in my time. I've been a Jesus follower for over 50 years. I can kind of just kind of drift or slide or, or in, in, into my final years. No, no, no. He says, no. It's too important. Don't grow weary. Don't get discouraged. It's really important to us older folks because what are we teaching the next generation? Because the church is always only one generation away from extinction. Are we teaching them, yes, it's worth it and it's working? Are we teaching them that no one can thwart God's will and God's work? The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Now, if you're under 45, you've got a whole different perspective. You got most of your life ahead of you. Uh, so that seems like a long time. So it's easy. I, can I keep going? <laughs> it's easy to get discouraged. Fearless. 
We're to be fearless. So I wanted to end with that theme verse of our series here. Something Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. Um, to do this, and this is what's required to be a Jesus follower, we need to be fearless. Otherwise, I don't think we can do it. So he, Jesus, was saying to them all, if anyone, everybody's invited, anyone can be, if anyone wishes to follow me, we call that a disciple or Jesus follower, he must, <laughs> this is a requirement, no other options. He or she, we must deny ourselves. Oh, we don't like that. That's setting aside our selfish interest. I like to do what I like to do. I want what I want. He said, no, no, no. If you're going to be my follower, you have to set aside your selfish interest. Why? Because his interests need to be more important than our interests. And then there's going to be a cost factor. There's going to be a difficulty. There's going to be a pushback. And so daily, not occasionally, but every day, take up your cross. It's different for all of us. What does that mean? Expressing a willingness to endure what may come. So whether our candidates in office or not, whether the economy's doing what we want, whether you know, the medical profession is doing what, what we want. Whether the, you know, our intimate relationships, family members, are doing what we want. Whatever your cross may be, I don't know. And then follow me. What is following me? Follow me into the jaws of death. He describes it this way. Believing in me, conforming to my example and living, again, fearlessly, and if need be, suffering. We don't do a solid suffering, but suffering or perhaps dying because of our faith in me. Jim Elliott did. Most of us will never have to die because I say I'm a Jesus follower. So I'm going to word it a different way for you to think about something, especially our older generation, I think. How can we, whatever our age, model for the next generation or to the next generation that God is in control. How do we model that? We model that with fearlessness. We don't model it by whining and complaining and not getting when things don't go our way or we don't get our way. How can you and I model? So you and I need to have a supernatural joy when things aren't going the way we want. Do we have that? Are we exhibiting that? Are we loving the people across? Interesting thing, the way one side reacted this week. Most of us weren't very sympathetic four years ago when the other side reacted to the political uh, result, were we? And they're probably not very sympathetic to the other side this time. So how can you and I model to the next generation that God is in control? Let me pray with you. Father God, thank you. We thank you for uh, the history, the evidence we have from his, through history. Uh, the the uh, folks from the Old Testament, folks from the New Testament, uh, what we understand about the early church, people through history like Tyndale 
and more recently Jim Elliott, and even people today in Nigeria and Syria and other places. Evidence, proof that this thing we call Christianity is worth it. And it's working. And Father, help us understand that we're out of place here. We, we shouldn't feel too comfortable here. We're, we're different. That's okay. We've got something better waiting us, for us. We've got a job to do now. Let's get about the business of now. And if you're not a Jesus follower and you're listening or watching, um, this may seem like, hey, you didn't really talk me into becoming a Christian. Well, let me remind you that there's this, this, this joy, there's something better than this life. So we encourage you and invite you to step across that line and become a Jesus follower, even though, not the most likely, but death may, we're all going to die. But death because of that faith may be in your future. Father God, give us the wisdom to understand what we need to do for now and for the next generation. And then the courage to actually do it. We need your strength to be fearless like you, Jesus. And it's your precious name we pray. Amen.